Pandora. One lovely evening while dancing on the green, they saw Hermes, Zeus's messenger, come towards them. His step was slow and weary, his garments dusty and travel-stained, and he seemed almost to stagger beneath the weight of a huge box which rested upon his shoulders. Pandora immediately ceased dancing to speculate with feminine curiosity upon the contents of the chest. She nudged Epimetheus and in a whisper begged him to ask Hermes what brought him thither. Epimetheus complied with her request, but Hermes evaded the question, asked permission to deposit his burden in their dwelling for safekeeping, professing himself too weary to convey it to its destination that day, and promised to call for it shortly. The permission was promptly granted. Hermes, with a sigh of relief, placed the box in one corner and then departed, refusing all hospitable offers of rest and refreshment. He had scarcely crossed the threshold when Pandora expressed a strong desire to have a peep at the contents of the mysterious box. But Epimetheus, surprised and shocked, told her that her curiosity was unseemly, and then, to dispel the frown and pout seen for the first time on the fair face of his beloved, he entreated her to come out into the fresh air and join in the merry games of their companions. For the first time also, Pandora refused to comply with his request. Dismayed and very much discouraged, Epimetheus sauntered out alone, thinking she would join him and perhaps by some caress atone for her present willfulness. Left alone with a mysterious casket, Pandora became more and more inquisitive. Stealthily she drew near and examined it with great interest, for it was curiously wrought of dark wood and surmounted by a delicately carved head of such fine workmanship that it seemed to smile and encourage her. Around the box a glittering golden cord was wound, and fastened on top in an intricate knot, Pandora, who prided herself specially for her deft fingers, felt sure she could unfasten it, and reasoning that it would not be indiscreet to untie it if she did not raise the lid, she set to work. Long she strove, but all in vain. Ever and anon the laughing voices of Epimetheus and his companions, playing in the luxuriant shade, were wafted in on the summer breeze. Repeatedly she heard them call and beseech her to join them, yet she persisted in her attempt. She was just on the point of giving it up in despair when suddenly the refractory knot yielded to her fumbling fingers and the cord unrolling dropped to the floor. Pandora had repeatedly fancied that sounds like whispers issued from the box. The noise now seemed to increase, and she breathlessly applied her ear to the lid to ascertain whether it really proceeded from within. Imagine, therefore, her surprise when she distinctly heard these words uttered in the most pitiful accents. Pandora, dear Pandora, have pity upon us. Free us from this gloomy prison. Open, open, we beseech you. Pandora's heart beat so fast and loud that it seemed for a moment to drown all other sounds. Should she open the box? Just then a familiar step outside made her start guiltily. Epimetheus was coming and she knew he would urge her again to come out and would prevent the gratification of her curiosity. Precipitately, therefore, she raised the lid to have one little peep before he came in. 
Now Zeus had malignantly crammed into this box diseases, sorrows, vices, and crimes that afflict poor humanity. And the box was no sooner open than all these ills flew out in the guise of horrid little brown-winged creatures closely resembling moths. These little insects fluttered about, alighting, some upon Epimetheus, who had just entered, and some upon Pandora, pricking and stinging them most unmercifully. Then they flew out through the open door and windows and fastened upon the merrymakers without, whose shouts of joy were soon changed into wails of pain and anguish. Epimetheus and Pandora had never before experienced the faintest sensation of pain or anger, but as soon as these winged evil spirits had stung them, they began to weep and, alas, quarreled for the first time in their lives. Epimetheus reproached his wife in bitterest terms for her thoughtless action, but in the very midst of his vituperation, he suddenly heard a sweet little voice entreat for freedom. The sound proceeded from the unfortunate box, whose cover Pandora had dropped again. In the first moment of her surprise and pain, Open, open, and I will heal your wounds. Please let me out, it pleaded. The tearful couple viewed each other inquiringly and listened again. Once more they heard the same pitiful accents, and Epimetheus bade his wife open the box and set the speaker free, adding very amiably that she had already done so much harm by her ill-fated curiosity that it would be difficult to add materially to its evil consequences, and that perchance the box contained some good spirit whose ministrations might prove beneficial. It was well for Pandora that she opened the box a second time, for the gods, with a sudden impulse of compassion, had concealed among the evil spirits one kindly creature, Hope, whose mission was to heal the wounds inflicted by her fellow prisoners. Lightly fluttering hither and thither on her snowy pinions, Hope touched the punctured places on Pandora's and Epimetheus's creamy skin, and relieved their suffering, then quickly flew out of the open window to perform the same gentle office for the other victims, and cheer their downcast spirits. Thus, according to the ancients, evil entered into the world, bringing untold misery, but hope followed closely in its footsteps and to aid struggling humanity and point to a happier future. During many centuries, therefore, hope continued to be revered, although the other divinities had ceased to be worshipped. According to another version, Pandora was sent down to man bearing a vase in which the evil spirits were imprisoned, and on the way, seized by a fit of curiosity, raised the cover and allowed them all to escape. The Great Deluge Little by little the world was peopled, and the first years of man's existence upon earth were, as we have seen, years of unalloyed happiness. There was no occasion for labor, for the earth brought forth spontaneously all that was necessary for man's subsistence. Subsistence. Innocence, virtue, and truth prevailed, neither were there any laws to restrict men nor judges to punish. This time of bliss has justly borne the title of Golden Age, and the people in Italy then throve under the wise rule of good old Saturn or Cronus. Unfortunately, nothing in this world is lasting, and the Golden Age was followed by another not quite so prosperous, hence called the Silver Age, when the year was first divided into seasons and men were obliged to toil for their daily bread. 
Yet in spite of these few hardships, the people were happy, far happier than their descendants during the Age of Brass, which speedily followed when strife became customary and differences were settled by blows. But by far the worst of all was the Iron Age, when men's passions knew no bounds and they even dared refuse all homage to the immortal gods. War was waged incessantly, the earth was saturated with blood, the rights of hospitality were openly violated, and murder, rape, and theft were committed on all sides. Zeus had kept a close watch over men's actions during all these years, and this evil conduct aroused his wrath to such a point that he vowed he would annihilate the human race, but the modes of destruction were manifold, and as he could not decide which would eventually prove most efficient, efficacious, he summoned the gods to deliberate and aid him by their counsels. The first suggestion offered was to destroy the world by fire, kindled by Zeus's much dreaded thunderbolts, and the king of gods was about to put it into instant execution when his arm was stayed by the objection that the rising flames might set fire to his own abode and reduce its magnificence to unsightly ashes. He therefore rejected the plan as impractical and bade the gods devise other means of destruction. After much delay and discussion, the immortals agreed to wash mankind off the face of the earth by a mighty deluge. The winds were instructed to gather together the rain clouds over the earth. Poseidon let loose the waves of the sea, bidding them rise, overflow, and deluge the land. No sooner had the gods spoken than the elements obeyed. The winds blew, the rain fell in torrents, lakes, seas, rivers, and oceans broke their bonds and terrified mortals forgetting their petty quarrels in a common impulse to flee from the death which threatened them, climbed the highest mountains, clung to uprooted trees, and even took refuge in the light skiffs they had constructed in happier days. Their efforts were all in vain, however, for the waters rose higher and higher, overtook them one after another in their ineffectual efforts to escape closed over the homes where they might have been so happy, and drowned their last despairing cries in their seething depths. The rain continued to fall until after many days, the waves covered all the surface of the earth except the summit of Mount Parnassus, the highest peak in Greece. On this mountain, surrounded by the ever-rising floods, stood the son of Prometheus, Deucalion with his faithful wife, Pyra, a daughter of Epimetheus and Pandora. From thence, they, the sole survivors viewed the universal desolation with tear-dimmed tear eyes. In spite of the general depravity, the lives of this couple had always been pure and virtuous, and when Zeus saw them there alone and remembered their piety, he decided not to include them in the general destruction but to save their lives. He therefore bade the winds return to their cave and the rain to cease. Poseidon, in accordance with his decree, blew a resounding blast upon his conch shell to recall the wandering waves which immediately returned within their usual bounds. Deucalion and Pyra followed the receding waves step by step down the steep mountainside, wondering how they should repeople the desolate earth. As they talked, they came to the shrine of Delphi, which alone had been able to resist the force of the waves. There they entered to consult the wishes of the gods. 
Their surprise and horror were unbounded, however, when a voice exclaimed, Depart from hence with veiled heads and cast your mother's bones behind you. To obey, to obey such a command seemed sacrilegious in the extreme, for the dead had always been held in deep veneration by the Greeks, and the desecration of a grave was considered a heinous crime and punished accordingly. But they reasoned the gods' oracles can seldom ex be accepted by a literal sense. And Deucalion, after due thought, explained to Pyro what he conceived to be the meaning of this mysterious command. The earth, he said, is the mother of all, and the stones may be considered her bones. Husband and wife speedily decided to act upon this premise and continued their descent, casting stones behind them. All those thrown by Deucalion were immediately changed into men, while those cast by Pyro became women. Thus the earth was peopled for the second time with a blameless race of men, sent to replace the wicked beings slain by Zeus. Deucalion and Pyra shortly after became the happy parents of a son named Helen, who gave his name to all the Hellenic or Greek race, while his sons Aeolus and Doris and grandsons Ion and Achaeus became the ancestors of the Aeolian Dorian, Ionian, and Achaean nations. Other mythologists in treating of the Diluvian myths state that Deucalion and Pyra took refuge in an ark which, after sailing about for many days, were stra was stranded on the top of Mount Parnassus. This version was far less popular with the Greeks, although it betrays still more plainly the common source whence all these myths are derived.